0: everybody this morning so a a little bit of backstory behind this one is I thought this would be uh, I have this concept and um, the concept was what are some of the lessons that we can learn from church history because it's not something we actually really talk about on a Sunday or indeed at all in in most of the churches I've been a part of and and there's a feeling perhaps that uh, that the history of the church represents more of a history of religion and we're not religion (laughs) Uh, that, uh, that, you know, religion is something bad and terrible and we're not that, we're just followers of Jesus, and, and, and I've heard that said quite a lot, and, and I understand the heart behind that, very much so, it's simply to say, you know, this isn't your parents' church, or this isn't your grandparents' church, or something like that, this is something new and fresh and different and interesting, and, and I understand very much the heart of that, I also understand that I've heard that for the last 20 or so years, and it's getting a little bit dated. <laughs> And everybody's been saying that, and it, 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 historically you've had movements, and each of them has said, "This isn't your parents' church," more or less, in one form or another. And um, so, this begs the question: the First slide, why history? And uh, and and I, I was having a bit of a think about this because, said, so the concept was to do like a multi-part series that's going to be, you know, one this month, and one in another month, and one in maybe a couple of months after that. You know, as they get written, they go in. Trying to start with. An overview of church history and understand a little bit what's gone before us and the rationale is we're trying to do something new in a sense we're part of a broader movement we're part of we have a parent church in victoria parent churches in victoria and we come under the umbrella of the acc so we're connected to a broader body of christ but whether we like it or not we're actually connected into a very, very broad body of Christ, an historical body of Christ, that have gone through trials, that have gone through successes, that have gone through difficulties, that have gone through uh, moments of absolute innovation and have gone through moments of absolute degradation. And what we can learn from this history will help us as we start to build something new here, as we start to take something in. You know, Solomon says, there's no new thing under the sun. And, and, And that's completely... Completely true. Many of the issues that we face in the modern church were also faced with the church basically as it was being developed in the first few centuries. Many of the trials and tribulations we see in history came out of arguments in the first little bit of the Christian experience. And many of the things we face today bear striking similarity to things that we faced earlier on in the day. So there's a lot to be learned from history, and there's a lot to be learned from church history in particular. so that, that's that's sort of the rationale behind it. I I, I thought two weeks ago when I thought and I was informed I'd have I'd have two weeks to sort of come up with the first part. I thinking yeah, no problems. And now I'm starting to panic because it's actually quite ambitious. Um, <laughs> a brief history of the church, a two or three or four part series. You know, you can't possibly do it justice in a short amount of time. But what I what I hope to do is just pull out some highlights, pull out some points, maybe just expand the mind a little bit on a few bits and pieces, and, and try and see what we can learn collectively from, I guess, the successes of the past, the mistakes of the past, the things that people wrote. So um, we're going to go to I think the next slide. I quite like. I love this one. This was actually an introduction of uh, this book by Julio Gonzalez, the story of Christianity. And I've just, if you read his it, blurb, it's quite funny. The author of the tiny place, three volume history of Christian thought received his MA at Yale and was the youngest person to be awarded a PhD in historical theology at Yale. So this guy's sort of got his stuff together. But I love this thought when I was, when I was having a bit of a read through. You know, Like it or not, we are heirs of this host of diverse and even contradictory witnesses. Talking about church history, even the history of the gospel itself. Some of their actions we might find revolting and others inspiring. But all of them form a part of our history. All of them, those whom we admire as well as those whom we despise, brought us to where we are now. So we think of ourselves disconnected from the broader body of Christ and the broader history, but whether we like it or not, many of the fundamentals that were shaped by the history of the church, the things that we believe and have in common perhaps with other denominations, you know, obviously there are differences, but the things that we believe at a centrality of core rely upon a body of history that exists has gone before. And so by understanding that we start to understand more of who we are, more of what we espouse and the reasons why we did it. Sometimes very simple concepts in, in, in Christianity or very simple God's concepts um, underwent hundreds of years of, of challenge and uh, much ink was spilled sometimes much blood was spilled, sometimes much uh, division happened over very, very small differences and things along those lines. And we realise when we celebrate these things or when we partake in these things when we recite a creed or something like that all of the history that goes behind getting to that point and why it's actually there and we start to see sometimes the intention behind these things was really 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 good and then later it turned into something else completely different so that's, that's really the rationale for why church history you know the earliest part of the church actually talks is this idea of the apology um, or, or sometimes called apologetics and, and we think of apology in terms of saying sorry for something um, whereas in, in context it actually means a defense, uh, a defense of Christianity apologetics is a study of the defense of Christianity. And, uh, so it's an interesting, I guess, point about the modern church is that when you start something up that's when you're talking about church history, the first thing you have to do is an apology. <laughs> Apologize for doing it and then try and defend why you're actually doing it. So it's, it's an interesting place to be. So hopefully we can have a of fun with it as we go along. That's the main thing. Um. So that's why history. So, what about some ground rules for how we're going to go through this? Well, I say ground rules, we can take or leave some of these ideas, but this is something that comes up often when you're looking into it. Firstly, the story of the church is messy, it's inspiring. There are moments where you're sitting going, What on earth were they thinking? People are acted out of lust, people acted out of a desire for power, people have acted out of a uh, desire for, to oppress. People have acted out of this great love. People have acted out of great sacrifice. People have shown tremendous courage in the face of difficult circumstances and even death. And so we have this picture that's you know, not always pleasant, not always inspiring, but it is something we can learn from in the process. And so we have to approach this warts and all. You know, We're going to look at this warts and all. Um, the second point, and this is more of a point of study, though it might be a little bit challenging, is... Generally, when you look at history, you sometimes have to set aside your own moral judgments on the situation. And uh, I know that's quite different, we see things differently to the way that things were seen back then. And so you can't always look into a situation the same way that we look into it, right? With the same kind of value judgments. So not to say that wrongs are wrong, but you have to understand sometimes there's a different heart or there's a different aspect behind what was done and um, in the past, and, and, and it's very difficult to sort of see ourselves in that context. Uh, a good example is, often we hear, you know, in the Gospels about we read the Bible about slavery, um, and we read, we read in the early church about the issues that they struggled with the slavery, Now, for us, slavery is abhorrent. Um, for the early church, slavery was uh, uh, also not great, because everyone was created equal for God, but they lived in an environment in which slavery was a normal part of the Roman existence at that time. And I, loved, I, loved, I, read, I remember reading this, this, uh, this article once where it talks about, um, you know, you had this really interesting situation. You didn't realise just how revolutionary Christianity was, until you consider something like slavery, in which you might have a household uh, of Christians that included slaves, and very often it was the slaves, uh, who would talk amongst themselves. And, and it was an interesting how often introductions to Christianity floated up in, in Roman society, from travellers, from traders, from people maybe at the lower strata, slaves, to people at the higher strata of Roman society. And so you'd have a situation where during the week you would have uh, the relationship of a master-slave a slave, that on a Sunday, all of a sudden they found themselves sitting in the same church as equals before God. And then back to the relationship before. Now, they had to preserve that in order to keep the order of the time, and, and through the work of uh, prominent people in the church, like William Wilberforce, we found you know, slavery was eventually abolished in the UK and, and then further spread uh, around the world. Now, so you had that sort of situation in which Christianity was maybe, on one hand, to be tolerant of something, on the other hand, it was highly subversive, um, because in reality, this was a situation. Um, I also think of, of uh, the approach of the, the role of women in, say, Roman society, which there was very um, very much 2nd class citizens. Uh, whereas in Christian circles, they were given an opportunity to learn, they were taught, they were encouraged, there were many early church leaders who were female, etc. So Christianity had, on one hand, maintaining the status quo, uh, but on the other hand, this very subversive role in which... People were elevated, and, and the the way in which society operated was turned upside down on Sunday. And I was thinking that's absolutely fascinating it just goes to show how multi-layered history is, and also the history of the church is. Um, so we're going to go on, and I think it's important to understand a little bit um, of where we are. I might go to the next the next slide, the picture. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I had to read there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm reminded of a statement made by an American general when they were going into Iraq. They had a chart of all of the different factions. And, oh, it was Iraq or Afghanistan, one of the two. All the different factions and tribes and push influences and pull influences and things like that. And it's a massive powerful thing that spreads over several pages. And the general sat there and going, well, it's like, well, if we ever manage to understand what the chart's about, we might have a, dance, a chance at winning the war. <laughs> and when I first saw this chart of the sort of denominations and actually sort of sidelines and heresies like that. Uh, I got to a I got to a similar sort of place. It's like, well if we ever really understand the chart um, we're going to uh, we're gonna have a much better chance of it. But just um, it's just really illustrate that well things are complicated. Um, and and sort of some of the major waypoints between early Christianity up here and us, which is I've uh, got colour at the bottom we're sort of roughly <laughs> No it's <laughs> fixed. Oh no, it's fixed. Where are we? I can't even read it. Oh, we're we're here. We're here. So (laughs) Pentecostalism. So down Methodism, Salvation Army, Pentecostalism. Yeah. Um. I think that's right. Yes. Very good. Wow. So, so, uh, but you can see that even though we're in this kind of tree, it doesn't take that far to go back, and we end up sort of back at the start. And we're going to have a little look at uh, really. Okay. So you see this chart, this big chart. We're going to look at this tiny little bit up in the corner here, really. So. That's what we're going to get to today. Hopefully, it's good fun. And um, so we we had this sort of the early church, and um, and you know from the time of the, the apostles. So if you if you read um, my suggestion would be if you're going to get a good history of the early church, of course read Acts. If you want to sort of read this continuous thought, read Luke and Acts because they're written by the same author. So just sort of read them as a continuous thought, and you'll, uh, you'll sort of get an idea of the early church. I'm actually not going to focus on very much the church of Acts because that's something that's spoken about. Quite extensively, it's actually more interesting what happened afterwards. And what you had in the church at that time broadly were um, the shift that happened in Christianity from being a Jewish sect, as in, you know, the thought, the thought that it was just a, a subsect of Judaism, and, and this uh, from the Roman perspective. And they didn't really have a problem with this because Ju- Judaism had sects they had different uh, groups. You had um, the Pharisaical tradition. Which, of course, we, we hear referenced in the Gospels quite a bit. And it's interesting as a Christian because you, tend to, um, you tend to be taught a certain thing about uh, the Pharisees because Jesus was always butting heads about them. And it's interesting when you see a different, different sort of approach about it. It's like Jesus was butting heads with them because actually we think of the Pharisees as being quite um, sort of the wealthy class of Judaism, those within power. They're actually more uh, the thinkers in Judaism and, and they had power because of their thought. The Sadducees were more of the power base, and the Essenes were sort of more out-in-the-wilderness type, trying to, um, I guess, eschew the material world. Um, but um, in effect, I guess, modern Judaism has more of its roots in, in the Pharisaical tradition than in the other sects. But Christianity just was seen for a long time as, as, a, as a Jewish sect, while it remained within the confines of, of the Jewish world. Um, but we see the transition, you know, Peter uh, and, and others, all of a sudden Christianity starts to spread to the non Jewish world the Gentile world and there 's very much an explosion that happens um, in the non jewish world and I talk about some of the reasons why this happened I mean you had uh, even though there were very violent times you had a certain amount of peace because of the Roman Empire you had uh, ways trading ways that were well guarded and so people were able to travel people were mobile and where people were mobile ideas were mobile you also had um, an interest from Really, two two groups that seemed to meet. The first was Jews that were open to uh, what we call Hellenic influences, which were Jews that were open to sort of Greek thought, and so they they not so much not so much the Pharisaical things, but they were open to the the, the Greek philosophers and, and you could see some parallels between what certain Greek thought had contributed and what uh, and what Judaism held. And he also had a collection of of Greeks that. Uh, were not necessarily interested in the, the Roman state religion of, of paganism, which was just simply, in a nutshell, the Roman idea was that, right, there's lots of gods, we're going and taking over things, so every time we find a new god, we kind of just add it into the pantheon in one form or another, and, you know, it's easy to bring it. And then, at the time of Christ, of course, you had uh, 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 Julius Caesar, oh, I learned recently, sort of embarrassingly, Julius Caesar. <laughs> um... Who who was venerated as a god, and then uh, Augustus Kaiser, who, who who was who you know who was, who was at the time venerated, Ulysses as a, as a god, and 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 so on. This cult of emperor worship that came along that becomes important a little bit later on, um, and and so you had you had the Jewish sort of church, and then from that you had this sort of Hellenized influence in the church, the Greek influence in the church that spread, and um, now what happened was. Um, This is sort of the mechanism by which Christianity went from being just another uh, Jewish sect and formed its own identity uh, very much in the the Hellenic thinking world, in in the Greek thinking world, and then spread beyond Jerusalem to the different cities that went around. Now, this is important because it's this part of the church that really everything else kind of flows from. The Jewish Church, the, the, the temple was destroyed in A.D. seven. There was a persecution under Nero from about A.D. sixty four of, of, of Jews and Christians, but Christians as a, as a, as a Jewish sect, um, and and the temple was destroyed in uh, sorry the yeah temp- the destruction of the temple and eventually destruction of the the, the scattering of the Jews and they formed a diaspora and they went elsewhere. And at that point the um, Jewish Christian tradition became very much a sideline to history, and the, the, the Hellenized church of the, of, of the rest of the Roman Empire became uh, where everything was happening. And, uh, and that's, that, that's kind of important, so we, we, there's the influence of Greek thought in the church, and, and we see that through today. Now, in our society outside of Christianity, we are sometimes said to be influenced by Greek thought. Uh, the, and, and our education system and things along those lines. So the things that the Greeks held to be important, and, and there were many, many different uh, philosophies and that came with that. But uh, um, the form influence form and influence things in our society today. And now, um, yeah, but the one thing that the Hellen uh, the the Jews that were interested in Greek culture provided that was very, very important to the spread of early Christianity. Um, was the Septuagint because often they had moved away from Jerusalem. They didn't speak Hebrew as well as uh, you know, so so they spoke Greek. And so the Septuagint was a translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And so when the early Christian missionaries were moving around, and you read really in Paul when he's he's coming places like Rome, and there already exists a church there, so we think of him as missionary. Efforts were going to places, but often when he'd turn up, there was already something happening there. So people were mobile, and there were the early churches were forming left, right, and centre. And they were aided by uh, a Greek Old Testament, and also by uh, writings and letters of Gospels that were distributed in Greek, in various forms. And it provided a mobile source of, source of reference to them all. So we have this, and so smack bang in the middle of this, and we hinted on this from about the time of Nero onwards. Um, we started seeing a, a very large amount of persecution in the early church, and um, this so this meant that um, and and this was born out of um, people just say oh well, you know people didn't like Christians they go they were killed, and there's, there's, there's often a little bit more to it than that um, because for for the Roman society of course they had uh, their social events they had things in which everybody interacted. And often these events had a very, very heavy pagan slant to them. So they'd have the games, or they'd have this, which you know, sometimes barbarism, sometimes more like sports and things along those lines, but, but they had this, they were dedicated to such and such a god, or they had this aspect of it, or there was the, the temple, temple interactions that went on in society, there was a veneration of the empire, emperor. And so because each of these things, the, 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 the pagan experience was at odds with, with what how the early church thought they should live, Christianity. Uh, the early Christians sort of just withdrew from many of these social um, occasions, and so weren't, weren't seen, and were thought to be up to something just because they weren't around, is, is one aspect of it. And the, the second part of it is the rise of the imperial cult, whereby the emperor was venerated as a god. And this presented a, um, a, a tricky thing for Christians, and it presented a tricky thing to some extent for the em- emperor, and sort of a bit of to and fro as to what should be done with them should it be persecuting Christians polus polis, or um, you know, should there be slightly more interesting legal precedents then? So I finally get to you get to I think a conversation between Pliny the Younger and Trajan, where they say, what is it we're meant to do? Are we are we just persecuting them because they call themselves Christians? Or um, Is is there something else we should be doing? And they come to this sort of position that uh, if they're not on the radar, we're not going to seek them out. (laughs) But if someone dobs someone else in, then we'll bring them in and question them. And if they won't uh, burn incest to the emperor and curse Christ, then we bump them off. Uh, But otherwise, we sort of leave them alone. And so it's sort of like people get dogged in and then they have to... Okay, well, they're here. And, And they were really getting killed... Uh, and, and the Romans just saw them as being obstinate you know, uh, this, this belief in the afterlife that gave them such courage that they were able to withstand death um, and account countless stories which I won't go into the early church leaders and early church participants but this was just seen as obstinacy and so they, they were sort of being killed more because they just refused to take part in the social order at that time uh, and, and give up on their beliefs in favour of the imperial cult, and 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 this 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 became sort of the rationale behind it. Didn't change the horrific nature of it, and didn't change the problems that it caused within the church, because you had people who uh, you have stories of the early martyrs who um, you know stood their ground even unto death, and and then you have at the same time this great question what do you do with people that have recanted? <laughs> because the human mind is is fickle. Some people have courage. Some people are emboldened by God to do great things, and other people just faced with that kind of well, do or die situation. Choose do rather than die, and that's just part of the human experience. You can't gloss over it and say there was absolute perfection in the way in which people interacted. And this, this, we'll talk about this in another week. But this this created um, some interesting problems for the church later on, as the question: of What on earth do you do with someone who has recanted, but then wants to come back? And this uh, this period of persecution, look, it was on and off for a couple of hundred years through the through the back end of the 1st century, through the 2nd century, until uh, about, about AD 320, when it sort of take it off, and, and uh, Constantine was converted, the Emperor Constantine, Christianity became a state religion a little while after that. Um, and so this persecution existed. And um, so they're not generally sought out. People are accused. They're not generally sought out unless they were accused, and then they were tried and tested, and if they failed the test, they were killed. And... Uh, so, this, uh, there's a really, really good quote I found, and it's in one of the first apologies ever um, written, the first defences, and um, we don't know who wrote it. <laughs> you no, know, it was written probably uh, about AD 100, up to about AD 30, 138, which is the next great apology. So this is, is written roughly at the same time that the book of John is being written. Um, And I love it because it just brings so close to the reality that we experience today, even though we don't necessarily experience the same kind of imperial persecution that they had. The Christians are no different from the rest in their nationality, their language or customs. They live in their own countries, but as sojourners. They fulfill their duties as citizens, but they suffer as foreigners. They find their homeland wherever they are, but their homeland is not in any one place. They are in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They love on the earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey all laws, but they live at a level higher than that required by the law. They love all, but all persecute them. And I, I think, you know, this is this, this amazing uh, thought of as this person trying to explain, well, you know, we're being accused of this, we're being accused of being exclusive, we're being accused of perverse practices because people don't understand what we do. There was, there was a lot of confusion uh, because early Christian terminology used the term the love feast to describe communion. Um, which, in the slightly warped minds of the of the pagan of the Romans and the Greeks, thought that this was some kind of orgy rather than communion, and um, there's also the, the the description of communion as being uh, consumption of body and blood of Christ accused of cannibalism, all sorts of things like that, blood libel, and these were common things. These have been used against the Jewish world as well at various times during persecutions in the past. Um, but I love this one. You know they are. They, they love on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They love all, but all persecute them. And I find it interesting because the person who's writing 70 years after Christ, more or less, and still rings very, very, very true today about the way in which we exist on this world, we partake in this world, but we're sojourners or travellers. We're not necessarily connected, somewhat disconnected from the social interactions of this world because of our beliefs. And, and this was simply a first attempt to say, look, you know, we're not so different. We're not this uh, group of people that you perceive us to be. We exist in the same realm that you do. We just follow a different set of beliefs. And this was the first slurs um, of the And there were different attempts of at apology at trying to reconcile, trying to explain to uh, our critics or trying to explain to Rome, or trying to explain, you know, what, try and correct things that were wrong in, the, in what people were saying about the early church, and also trying to find some common ground so that they could get on, especially during the times of, of pronounced persecution, uh, of which there were some where it was definitely worse than in other times. In other times the church was more or less ignored. Um, so that, that, was, that, was, that was into Diogenes. Yeah, you can see it on the screen. I can't. <laughs> and so, in response to this, in trying to understand—sorry, uh, this is very heavy, Danny. Everybody's looking very, very serious. <coughs> don't worry, there's a point. There. <laughs> in trying to—and so we see this. There was—I love this. Um, there was another apologist, Tation, um, who said—and and, and this is sort of another approach. Uh, who, whose who's, who's response was simply to say, um, instead of trying to find common ground, his response was simply to say, uh, everything that you value comes from the Greeks, and everything that the Greeks have, they pinched. Um, <laughs> from various other cultures, you know, and, and it talks about uh, various things in like architecture, philosophy and mathematics, all of these things like that, and if, if, if morality... Is 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 the, the, something the Greeks said? Well, Moses was writing many many hundreds of years before the Greeks, so therefore, they nicked it from from Judaism. Um, I don't know that this was possibly the most successful approach to defending the church was to simply to say, you know, everything that you hold dear and elevate in your world, you pinched from someone else, um, and especially because a lot of the early church had a Hellenic influence, had a Greek influence, and so you know, this was one approach. But uh, probably the the earliest Well, one of the other's known apologists, was a chap called Justin Martyr. Well, he's called Justin. Martyr was added because, well, he was (laughs) Martyr. And and he wrote sort of very, very early apologies to address the accusations made against the church at that time. A little bit after that one, 120, 138, something along those lines. Uh, he, he died some later on so it's very but a very early apology a very interesting uh, it's is like often often sort of seen as the first defender of the church in many in many respects uh, he didn't get everything right and none of these people ever get everything right as we'd see it today you have this duality of incredible thought mixed with often sometimes going way off on the wrong track that happens in a, it not only happens in the early church it happened later on in the Reformation it happened all over the time we had this this, this duality of people, you know, Martin Luther, who's able to make these amazing statements, these things that resonate true today, and yet, the other time you read some of the things he wrote, uh, uh, you know, offensively, I think there's even a website you can go to where you can get sort of, an, you know, offensive comment of the day from Martin Luther, or, or, or you know, from something like that, you know, from his collected writings, um, and so you have this incredible, incredible mix of good and bad that represents very much the human condition, uh, this incredible mix of, of just fantastic thought and how on earth could they say that um, that, we, that we don't necessarily understand and, and, that, and that resonates throughout history it's something we just have to live with but we also learn from in the process so Justin Martin, i got some things and he was very interesting because instead of simply saying you know, look we're alright I mean he did say that and we're not all of this blood libel stuff that you're talking about all these practices you're just getting along into the sea but he also attempted to engage with the culture of the day. And a uh, very interesting statement. He's talking about, um, in, you know, in John 1, where it talks about, in the beginning was the Word. This word, <laughs> logos. And uh, tr- tricky to understand. Uh, even that phrase, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, it was a tricky to understand. So Justin sort of tried to say, into the Greek speaking, look, you are familiar with this concept, Logos, you know, in your world it means word, but it also means like reason. Um, Another thing I've heard is sort of like divine action. It's like a verb, you know, a doing word, but a a divine doing word. Word or reason. And uh, your philosophers spoke of the Logos, and they understood it in part. They had a partial revelation of reason. But here in Christianity, in Christ, is the full representation of reason, of the word, is this, this idea that you kind of had an inkling about for a few hundred years you know, this Christianity, this Christ, is the Logos the fulfilment of that, that which you've been looking for. And that was very successful not only I think in terms of, of um, well I mean I well, don't know how successful it was in terms of reducing persecution but it was successful in terms of understanding um, and promoting understanding within the environment but also within the great church, this idea. And so, it was a fantastic idea in which he, Justin, appropriates the culture of the day, the language of the day, in the same manner, uh, I think, at Mars Hill, when Paul talks to the, uh, the unknown God, and uh, um, appropriates, appropriates that, and creates a point of contact. And, and this, is, this, I think, is very, very interesting, because having done this, <laughs> and, and I see this in our own way, in which we try... Engage with culture. We try and have a culturally relevant service as well, which is which is important. Uh, I always reminded of something William Booth said. we talks about you know, uh, uh, you know I know how or learn. Said to have said, <laughs> uh, I would learn to play tambourine, not you know, with my feet standing on my hands. If I thought it would bring one person to Christ. In other words, there's a certain uh, you know we have a mission involved, and we use whatever techniques we have to get that mission done. I right, understand it, but see, having engaged with that culture, very shortly after that. It all kind of goes horribly wrong in which, because the next big thing that sort of happens is the rise of, of Gnosticism and, and um, in particular Marcionism which is sort of, it, it arose as like this, this heresy in the church that kind of grew in concert with the early church and actually had quite a lot of, modern, you know, distracted followers at the time. And, it, and it, Now, Gnosticism covers a huge range of beliefs as a title, including non-Christian ones as well as Christian ones, but um, and so I can't really attempt to do justice to them, but, but, but one overriding theme is this borrowing from the Greek world that the material world was evil, that uh, ownership of things, that, that you know, everything in the material world was evil, and so there was, there was a big um, desire to rid oneself of the material world, but also what it, what it created for them was quite a problem, in that well, if the material world's evil, the world's evil, and God is very, very good, then God cannot have created... You know, this God cannot have created the material world. And so there ends up being this, like, multiple levels and layers of, 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 of God and uh, interaction of those that create the world and those that don't, those that are good. And, you know, it, 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 it got very um, complicated. And predominantly, one of the hallmarks of it was the tendency to pick and choose from uh, Scripture... Or the tendency to pick, two things, the tendency to pick and choose scriptures. They only sort of took parts of scripture or gospels that they agreed with. And the other tendency was to emphasize this idea that there was special knowledge that was transmitted to the head of whatever movement it was or the believers of that sect that was not transmitted to everybody else because if they had the special knowledge, they had the keys to salvation. And that's that sort of Gnosticism in a nutshell. Um, if anybody ever, <laughs> anybody knows anything about Gnosticism is listening, I apologize. Um, but I, I'm trying to get it in a short amount of time. Now, the reason this is of, of interest is because of the response of the early church and how it affects us nowadays. Um, because Gnosticism insisted that there was a special transmission of knowledge, that there were some people who were privy to it and others who weren't. The actual actual is knowledge. And, um... So the church had to respond to this. Another thing that was very interesting was you had like in Marcionism, the tendency to say, well, we're only going to take one of the gospels. Uh, I think it was Luke's gospel, and Marcion sort of cut bits out that he didn't really like, and then and based a lot of a lot of their own, a lot of their, their beliefs on that, and um, created a very you know convoluted system of beliefs, and and it was very damaging to the early church. And so, and I call this the dark side of cultural engagement in some respects. It's when the way in to a situation becomes the way you do. So when you replace the way with the way in. Right? And so the early church was just experiencing the same thing as any church that's ever tried to set up a pub ministry and then ended up with an entire church full of alcoholics who were not previously alcoholics. (laughs) They just brought a whole lot to the party. And, or it's the same as when people go and they think I'm going to go minister amongst a certain group of people and the next thing you know uh, they're starting to compromise on really their core, their core beliefs, the things that identify them that set them apart. And, uh, and it's very difficult then to tell them from the people that they're engaging with. And I think that's, I think that's very interesting because it's like it's obviously it's nothing new. And the church was experiencing it on quite a large scale in the early days. Um, but what it did do and I think there's some very interesting, interesting outcomes from this. So, what, did the, what was the response of the church? Well, this process accelerated, I think. Well, my opinion, when I read, it accelerated the uh, development of the New Testament canon of Scripture. So, the early church uh, leaders, there was some disparity in the canon of the New of the New Testament. So, some would use particular books, and then the the modern canon that we have. I think was, was was in use by about the middle of the second century um, by some of the church leaders and was sort of confirmed around about the end of the fourth century and sort of tied it up. And there were various arguments beyond that, that which books were in, which books were out, which writings were in. And you have to remember Gnosticism, Marxism, Marxism, all of these things produced a huge amount of uh, material that they had to sift through. Because of course what was happening was these people were saying, Well we have this sect, we have to have some legitimacy, and so they would write down their their thoughts, and then they would be um pseudographic, I think is the word, they would be, you know, they hear this, the gospel of so-and-so, they'd pick an apostle that they wanted, and it would be the gospel of so-and-so, the you know, the revelation of so-and-so, or something like that. They'd have these, you know, all of it. So whenever you hear on the news, it happens every now and again, someone's found the gospel of this or the gospel of that, or the lost gospel of Judas, I think was the last one. It was it's often it's often, this is when this sort of stuff was happening. You know, we, know, we know about them. <laughs> and we, are, we know that they exist. Even if we don't have copies of them, because they've been referred to in other things. So there's nothing really new under the sun when these things. So that's where it that comes from. Mostly the Gnostic writings. Mostly they are uh, excluded from the canon Scripture for very good reasons. Because um, they don't necessarily agree. So the response of the early church, even before the canon Scripture was developed, was um, so one outcome was the inclusion of the four Gospels. Um, and you might say, well, well that's, why is that, why is that um, important? Well, I mean, I know inclusion of gospels is important, but why? Why for? Why is that important? The early church was aware, as we are aware now, that when it comes to reading the gospels, you read stuff, and occasionally there's details that are different in the accounts. Um, and you see you going, well, surely it makes sense just to pick the one that you think is the best version, most representative. And we'll we'll, we'll work with that one. And um, the early church decided, and I think this was quite forward in the scheme of things, is that the testament of the gospels is not that every single minute detail, nut and bolt, is exactly the same. So, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the greatest things, greatest sermons ever written, in my opinion, Sermon on the Mount, which you know uh, is, is is in Matthew, and then which is similar but slightly different to the Sermon on the Plain, which is in Luke. And you sort of see, going, which one was it? Which one did Jesus preach? Was he on a mountain or was he on a plain? Uh, this is really important, and also because Luke's um, contains uh, references that are that perhaps go beyond what, what Matthew said, you know. Um, so Matthew says, you know, blessed are the Blessed are the peacemakers, you know, blessed are the foreign spirit, that sort of stuff like that. Luke sort of goes on, woe to you who are, um, where X, Y, and Z. <laughs> and, and possibly that has to do with the way that, you know, the sort of things that were transmitted, but also the way that maybe Luke viewed the world in many respects. There's, there's a heavy social gospel aspect to why Luke wrote. And he's simply saying, well, it is very likely that Jesus gave sermons on simple concepts on mountains and on plains here, there, and everywhere, and that these represent a representative of the thoughts that were written down, what he was presenting there. So there's not really a, a difference <laughs> on this. but to the casual observer, there's these small differences, and the other church decided that, well, you know, small differences being what they are, that's not really important. The important is you've got four independent testimonies of roughly the same thing on important points, <laughs> and, and sometimes you get so mired in the detail, you forget the fact you've got four people writing from four very different perspectives. And they managed to end up in agreement on all of the major points that represent the fundamentals of what we believe and why we believe it, And that's actually quite impressive. And, so, and of course, that's, you know, that's because it's inspired by God and the Holy Spirit is living and active in the preservation of that. But the, this was a direct response to the Gnostic tendency to sort of, well, we think this gospel is the one and we're going to base everything on this and then we're going to go off on our own little tangent or something like that. You know, the only church would say, look, Here it is, warts and all, because in this combined testimony, there is the truth. In this combined testimony, these combined observations, multiple witnesses, there is the truth, and there is, makes it more difficult to go off on particular tangents, or more difficult to descend into things that are irrelevant or not right. So that was one of the first outcomes, was was the use of the four gospels. The church was well aware of the differences. They weren't hiding things. They were simply saying, "This is the testimony of multiple witnesses, and this is important." Um, The second thing, and this this I find very interesting, is this concept of apostolic succession, and um, it's, it's. I don't know if you've ever heard of the phrase before, but it tends to evoke an interesting uh, sense of unease in our denomination and denominations of the past thing, because apostolic succession, as we hear, is is actually uh, something that's used in the Catholic Church to talk about the succession of the popes and cardinals and bishops back to the apostles. So there's an unbroken chain of people laying on hands and saying, right, commissioning from, from the time of the apostles now to the modern Catholic Church. And so it's, it's used as a sort of a plain of legitimacy of Catholicism in some respects. But I was I, 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 in my reading about it, I came to understand, I guess, the rationale behind why that was important in the early church. And there's a really interesting observation... In, um, in Gonzalez as well. They were dealing with this idea that special knowledge had been transmitted to a select group of people, and the select group of people set up their own sect. And as a consequence of that, they were sort of pulling people away from, really, you know, the, the, the acceptable middle, the central orthodoxy, the, you know, what we knew to be true. And so their response was simply to say, within the collection of early church leaders, right, each of them were only one or two generations away from the apostolic age, one or two generations back. So they'd either been discipled by an apostle, one of the twelve, or they'd been discipled by someone who was discipled by one of the twelve. And what they said is that we this is this is our lineage. This is this concept of apostolic succession. And if Christ had had a special message that he just wanted to some special knowledge, he would have transmitted it to. The apostles in general and they would have transmitted it to us yet here we all stand and say no you're wrong and so was sort of this this idea that in the same way multiple witnesses of the gospel we have multiple witnesses to the fact that christ's message was transmitted through this group of leaders and i love the observation that this was actually very inclusive <laughs> not exclusive to say ah we're the right ones because we have this lineage that goes back X number of years is simply saying, you have to understand that here we stand as test as witnesses only a few generations removed. And so when you say that there's some special revelation that's only been given to you, this isn't correct because we all knew this group or have known people who knew this group. The separation, the degrees of separation is very small. And it became a way of protecting the early church against the rise of, of heresies, the rise of agendas, the rise of people who thought they had a good idea or wanted to combine, uh, often wanted to combine the thoughts of other religions into Christianity because that's what the Romans did syncretized everything, uh, bring it in and take it. And people thought, well, if we do that, we pick and choose with other religions, we do that with Christianity. And the way the church kind of protected itself was through this testimony of many witnesses, both in terms of the gospel and in terms of the leadership. And so, what, and it, and it saddens me a little bit because now we see this as maybe something that's quite divisive in the church, this idea of apostolic succession, when in reality it was actually designed to create an environment in which the truth floated to the top rather than, you know, being swayed by every little thing that came along. So, so that, that was the second one. And the third one was the development of a creed, a, a sense of central thoughts about that, well, alright, we know that there's differences. We know that there's differences between us and other denominations. We know that there's differences between us and the world. But but at our central core, we hold these things to be the same because it's important. Now, I'm not saying that creeds are universally accepted. In fact, they're not. Most of those splits that you saw in the previous uh, denominational chart have to do with arguments over very often very small words in creeds or in things along those lines, you know, there's many, many, many things that have been written but the Apostles' Creed or at least early versions of it as it, as it, as it came Christian came as a statement and things that are contained within the Apostles' Creed in many ways spoke to things that Gnostics or Marcionists or others would not accept and so it was a way of simply saying okay, lines in the sand this is where it sort of exists. So it's this threefold approach to defending the early church. And, and uh, you know, this uh, I had to check because um, this is a to my embarrassment because you know there's the Apostle Creed is an creed, and creed I was trying to look at them just to make sure which one sort of within our denomination which one is is, is deemed which which one is deemed to be acceptable and which parts are deemed to be acceptable. Because as I said there's there's arguments between Eastern Western Christianity between different different things about which Parts they would now I believe this one's correct. I think even uh, Hillsong have a song called the Creed that pretty much takes these words for words. So so we're on the right path. It just goes to show how how, how tricky you have to be when you take on (laughs) church history. It's like okay, hang on a minute, let's just make sure we've got the right one. The Apostles' Creed, and and, uh, there are different formats, but I think this is the most popular one. The Apostles' Creed, says, "I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord." who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And that born of the Virgin Mary is actually to emphasize the idea of that he was born on earth. So it's an early reference to the the dual nature of the incarnation. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to hell, which was a separate sermon that Dr. Rod gave as to what he was doing during the time he was dying. So... The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Again, the idea of a final judgment was not something the Gnostics would necessarily take on board. Uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic in context means universal, so we're talking about the early church, so it's just an old word that means the church as a collective, not one particular domination. Communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. And much of this was written in defence of the early doctrines that were being attacked by the Gnostics, the many arguments about the nature of God, the nature of Christ, was he fully human, was he fully God, a heresies that came up about either trying to diminish the God side of things or trying to diminish the human side of things, and led us ultimately to strengthen our resolve that actually in, in, you know, in the Incarnation that Christ was fully God and fully human, and had to be so for him to be able to be a perfect sacrifice for the givers of sins and give us life everlasting. So that is was the third approach, was the development of creeds, of common orthodoxy, of a, of a line in the sand that says, well, this is what we believe, and then we'll talk more about these things as, 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 uh, as the series goes on, because, because they're important and we start to see which Aspects became matters of contention. And sometimes it's simply down to a few words that ended up being a split between one major denomination and another major denomination. Very interesting stuff to to, do. So the question remains at the end of all of that. What is the story that we take from all of those things that happened? What is the relevance of history to us nowadays? And I I hated that at it earlier. We realise as a church that we walk as sojourners on the world, we're here, we're part of a country, but we're not necessarily part of it in the same way that everyone else is. We, we go through life engaged with the world, but not necessarily living in the same world as everybody else because of our beliefs in Christ. It goes back to that early words in the Apology to Biogenitis. And in order to have an impact on this world, It's necessary. In order for people to understand what we are and to bring people to Christ, it is necessary to find cultural ground that we can communicate with them over. But in the process of doing that, we have to not let it chip away at our core beliefs. There's some stuff that can never change, that can never be uh, written out of the Christian experience. Because to do so basically removes us from the fundamental beliefs that we hold. But there's also other aspects in which we can start to engage and simply say, look, you believe this. We're not that far apart. It's just what you're seeing is a small part of what we see as a much larger revelation. And that's very good, and that's very positive, and that can lead to an outcome. But the flip side of that, the danger with it, is that when cultural engagement starts to replace the things that we actually hold as really important, and it's hard because it's very easy to become quite judgmental about it. It's very easy to say, oh, you know, where is the line? Where does it draw? People, you know, you just have to go online. People will, you put lights in a church and you darken things up, and everybody polarizes everybody. People are like, that's brilliant. Other people are like, I can't believe they're doing that. You know, you take out commune just to make the run sheet a little bit slimmer, and because it's a little bit awkward. And it's a little bit difficult, and it represents a challenge, and it's a logistical challenge, until so we move communion. And some people are like, that's brilliant, it makes for a really sick service. And there's other people that are like, I can't believe it because, you know, just how much was involved in getting the celebration of communion, you know, to be accessible. And it becomes something which we, we get very, very and very catchy about. I'm not saying there are any correct answers. I know that there are things that we hold as a church to be really important, and the issue of communion is one of them. Uh, as a weekly experience, and I like to say whatever we do, even if we don't have a full band one week, or even if we don't, you know, we don't necessarily even have a sermon one week. We just have a time of connection that we we'll still endeavor to have a time of communion in our, as part of our services because it's important, because it's important to us, and because we see it as historically important. Um, but that's not to say that what other people are doing is wrong. It's simply saying that we. We have an engagement with culture that happens. We have to be careful it doesn't wear away at the fundamentals of who we are and what we believe. And and one of the final things is that we look to Scripture. Well, two final things. The first is we look to Scripture as the ultimate authority. Knowing that through the multiple testimonies and witnesses of the Gospels and of Scripture in general, we can find a position of truth from that. And that is... What we're all searching for at the end of it all. And finally, it's simple to say that things seem to go funky <laughs> when people get disconnected, when people kind of get herded off from the mainline, and they start to get some funny beliefs and things like that. So we, as a church, we believe in connection. Not only amongst ourselves, we emphasise connection. We have time of connection afterwards, you know, in our in our things, worship, communion. Word connection, we value that. But it's not only just the connection amongst ourselves; it's also the connection to the broader body of Christ, in which we are connected to a movement. We are connected to uh, an oversight church. We're connect- and they're connected to a collection of churches that goes worldwide through the ACC. So, this connection allows us to maintain parity with other people who believe the same.